Hi, this is Gina, and welcome to Resisting Gilead. This week, I'm going to be podcasting solo, and we'll be sharing my thoughts on season four, episode four, titled Milk. So I'm going to start off a little differently. I'm going to start off with Rita's story, because this is a character I've been super fascinated with for some time. We really don't know too much about Rita, and I love the fact that she has escaped Gilead and is now in Canada trying to figure out a life on her own. So, you know, we see her in her very, in a very familiar way at first. She's, you know, making some bread and she looks very content and peaceful. And she's doing this because she's going to have lunch with Moira. Um, I like that these two women are creating a friendship, although they do seem to be a very mismatched pair. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I think their energies are just completely different. Um, and maybe Rita will, you know, kind of as she gets more acclimated to life outside Gilead, maybe we'll see more of her personality shine through. But I think, you know, this episode is really about her just finding some peace with being in a new environment and really separating herself from that old life. So, they're having lunch, Rita and Moira, and Moira breaks the news to Rita that there's no record of her sister or her nephew, but that Catholics were very good at forging passports, so you never know. So we find out Rita is Catholic, which I knew she had some type of religious background or ties. I do think Catholicism, I grew up Catholic. I think it's very different from what Gilead had to offer in terms of religion. Um, I mean, Catholicism is not a perfect religion. It is definitely, the Catholic Church is not a perfect organization by any means. I do think they have made some significant strides with Pope Francis in charge. However, there's just a lot that comes with being a member of the Catholic Church. So that was an interesting bit of information, but unfortunately there's no Kind of record of them being in Canada or alive. And the thing that flashed into my head was Rita sitting in that kind of basement room where Moira was when she was looking for, through all the pictures of the, the dead people to, to find the picture of her fiance. Um, that would kind of break my heart if, if Rita ends up having to do that. Hopefully she won't have to. But we also get the news that Serena Joy wants to see Rita. Shocking. And Rita's pretty indifferent about it, but Moira's like, hey man, you know, a lot of girls I know would kill for that type of closure. It's very, you know, it's very interesting. And I think even Rita's attitude towards Serena Joy, you know, she says the only reason she's locked up is because she wanted to be with the baby. Well, that's not the only reason. Uh, I don't know if Rita's, you know, necessarily heard about the charges against Serena Joy, you know, with what she put June through. Not in the ceremony, although she seems to be off the hook for that, but for kind of pairing her up with Nick in the first place. She goes in to see Serena. I mean, and I think the scene is just such an example of Serena and how manipulative she is. She knows that, that Rita had a son that died in the war. I'm now thinking that he died in the war not fighting for Gilead, but fighting for the other side. 
And she really uses the fact that she's pregnant to really get to Rita and just be like, I'm so glad you're here to help me. And, you know, she's, she's acting all, you know, I think June said once, Serena's always nice when she wants, when she's up to something or when she wants something. And, you know, Serena wants Rita to help her raise this child because she doesn't want to be involved with Fred anymore. And she tells Rita as much. She's like, oh, I'm not, I haven't told the commander, you know, that we're having a boy. You know, she really uses the fact that she's having a boy too. And as I suspected, Rita questions the whole miracle of this child, you know, being coming to life, so to speak, uh, you know, at the very beginning. And, and of course, Serena attributes it to all the work they've done in Gilead in terms of cleaning up of the environment, the clean air, the clean water, you know, their quotation marks, wholesome family values, all that kind of stuff. So clearly, uh, you know, I'm a PR person, I know how to spin stuff. Serena and Fred are PR people, they know how to spin stuff. And this is how they're gonna spin, um, spin this baby coming into being is, it, this is Gilead's work, which could have implications. If for some reason they get to go back, they're gonna be the shining stars of Gilead. Look what we've done. Although I would still bet that many commanders will not be willing to give up their handmaids, but you know, that's, you know, we'll see what happens there. I think that's something to come. So then something really interesting happens. Mark Chuello comes to visit Rita at her home later. And she, he mentions to her, he hands her all these materials. She's like, what's this for? He's like, oh, speak on in Serena's defense. And she's just like, he's like, oh, you didn't know anything about this. And then Rita drops a bomb that I was never super clear on, but we're gonna listen to it right now. What is this? Um, Mrs. Waterford's attorneys claim you can corroborate that any action she took regarding June Osborne's pregnancy was a result of extreme duress inflicted upon her by her husband. She wants me to blame the commander. That seems to be their strategy. Apparently, she was very moved by your visit. She believes the two of you share a strong bond. Did you know in Gilead, I was officially considered property of the Waterford family? I did, yes. Registered and everything. Like my old Nissan Altima. As we've heard Rita say, she was technically the property of the Waterfords. It was clear the handmaids were. They've got tags in their ears like cattle, which is how some farmers will tag their property, uh, uh, you know, their cattle. Um, they also brand them. Uh, we have not seen that on the handmaids at this point, but we've seen other things done to them. So we knew that handmaids are technically property or you know owned slaves, but it was never super clear about the Marthas. Um, indentured, yes, I guess they do all live at the household, um, but yeah, not not free to have their own lives. 
in any way. And this also, I think, really kind of resonates in terms of, you know, when Moira tells Rita in a previous episode that she could have said no to Luke to speak at that event because she's free to do so. It's really not only being about being free of Gilead, it's, it's about being free of slavery. You know, she was, she was a, what I guess we would equate to a housemaid in times of, uh, you know, slavery in the U.S., um, you know, and Fred goes on to say he was never cruel to her, but we saw Serena smack her at least once um, after the baby shower. And so it's not a, you know, I don't know. It just, it's depressing. It's, it's super depressing just to think that, uh, and I'm going to talk about it a little more, but the way women in the society are valued. Um, I don't know if the wives are considered property they have a lot more freedom. They have their own social lives and social circles. However, it seems like right now we've got probably four-fifths of the female population that are considered property in some way, shape, or form. Handmaid's Jezebel's and Martha's. And that perhaps only families of commanders are, well, families, women in the family of commanders, perhaps they are not considered property. And I'm not sure about econo wives. Um, you know, they're kind of a lower rung down the ladder. But I think it's probably safe to say that all women are considered property in the society uh, to varying degrees. And um, I mean, if, if a woman can't read or write, it doesn't really give them the capacity to be free and independent on their own. And you know, that's something else. I think when we see Commander Winslow's wife when she comes looking for him after he's missing, but we know that June has killed him. She's like, I'm a, I'm a woman with six children and I cannot be on my own. It makes me think the society, what happens to you when you become a widow? Um, I think that's a big question that we have not seen answered. And, and also I was thinking this society really does not have many elderly people. I think the oldest person we've seen at this point was Mrs. Key's husband. But I haven't really seen any truly elderly women. And I wouldn't even say he was, you know, elderly like someone in their late 80s or 90s. So um, I don't know. Again, the mysteries of this Gilead society just keep presenting themselves as we kind of get deeper out of it, actually. Uh, we are also, you know, with what's happening in Canada, we're, we're somehow finding out even more about it here. Um, so with this revelation that Rita was basically property and a slave, she makes a decision to go and see Fred. And, you know, he's slimy as Fred always is, but she drops a real bomb on him just saying, you know, we're not friends and your family is not my problem anymore and I'm staying out of it. Here's a card and I'll pray for your son. You know, uh, I love that's a, you know, it's a very straightforward move to let Fred know very verbally, 
please do not involve me in this. And it's a really stick it to Serena move in terms of Serena not wanting Fred to know that she was pregnant and Rita being the one to, you know, out her secret. Uh, I think that was some very nice justice there. And then, you know, the Rita's arc in this episode ends with her sitting down. She's not working as we saw her in her first scene, baking the bread. She's sitting down. She has got sushi takeout. She's preparing it and she closes her eyes. You see her say a little prayer and then she takes a bite of sushi and she smiles. And it's just a beautiful, liberating moment for her where she's, you know, it's, it's another move. I think t giving Fred the picture of the, the sonogram was the first one, but this was really the first thing she did for, you know, something to treat herself where she's not expected to make every single meal from scratch, <laughs> um, which seems to be, you know, how, how Gilead was, or there's no McDonald's lying around, that's for sure. So um, I just thought this arc with Rita was, was great. And I love finding out more about her. And um, I don't know if we'll have any flashbacks on her this season. The season's going really quickly, but we did have flashbacks from Janine this episode, which surprised me. I mean, we've known Janine now for uh, three and a half seasons, pretty much. And we've never had flashback. We do know a lot about her, but um, I just thought it was interesting, although it does make sense. And I'll kind of put my thoughts into, uh, into it when we get there. But I think it does make sense that they did flashbacks on Janine for this specific episode. So, milk. <laughs> I don't know. As someone, I personally think milk is disgusting. And other than the occasional splash of it in my coffee, this whole first scene with them jumping into this milk tank just made me gag. I was just like so grossed out by it. And I'm like, oh my God, if Jen, you know, is Janine going to die drowning in milk? It's like not my worst nightmare, but really not, not the way I'd want to go. Um, and, you know, but June, June finds the plug and I'm just like still sitting there smelling like milk, your clothes, your hair. Um, it just seems disgusting. I don't know, but they're out, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And if I were trying to get to Chicago and escape Gilead, yeah, I'd jump into a milk truck too. It just, um, I'd, I'd probably whine about it the, the whole way. Um, which, you know, Janine does a little. <laughs> it's cold in there, it sounds like, because, you know, they had it refrigerated to keep the milk from going bad. But um, this train ride, though, gets very personal. And they really get into what happened those last days they were in Gilead when June was in custody and when the handmaids were still waiting at that farmhouse. When we were at the farm, and we were hiding, Alma said we have to wait for June. She made sure we waited for you. She loves you. Loved you. They all loved you. 
like a real, real love. I know that. Did you tell the eyes where to find us? And June fesses up to it. She fesses up to it, um, says, oh, you would have done the same thing, Janine. And I think this is really where we get the power for Janine's flashbacks is you would have done the same thing, Janine. And she's like, you don't know what I would have done. You don't know me, which is, you know, kind of sadly true. These, these women have such limited, even though they were able to get 86 children out of the country, they really do have limited time together to really kind of spill their guts on their past personal lives and everything they've been through and the decisions they they had to make for themselves before Gilead. You know, they primarily know about kind of basic family structures they had. They had kids. That's why they're all there because they're fertile and they can they can give birth. But you know, we really don't know a lot. But I think we see a lot from Janine in this episode. They continue June and Janine talking about this. And, you know, I think June is an amazing character. She does some amazing things. Her heart's primarily in the right place. But when she is cruel, she's very cruel. And she says to Janine, I should have left you a long time ago. And I mean, that just really... I was just so disappointed in June. I mean, I'm sure it comes from a place of self-defense and guilt for, you know, Alma and Brianna and the other handmaids getting killed. But at the same time, even Aunt Lydia didn't give up on Janine. She ended up getting her back from the colonies. So just for June to say that was just so, ugh, it really disappointed me. I was just like, ugh, June, when you're awful, you're truly, truly awful. But you know, hey, she learned from Serena Joy so, um, so, you know, we know, we know what that came from. However, let's get into, you know, Janine's backstory here because it opens with her, you know, she's, she's talking to her boss at work and saying, I, I gave the shift to someone else because I have a doctor's appointment. And she just says it's time sensitive and you know, right away, oh, she's pregnant and she needs to get an abortion or she's going to look into that. At least that was my very first thing. And, and we know that she had a child in Gilead, Caleb. And, you know, I feel like her boss even understands what that means. Um, this is a very interesting time in this structure of the United States that's being presented in The Handmaid's Tale, because we know that June, to get contraception as a married woman, needs to have her husband sign a piece of paper so she could pick up the prescription at the pharmacy. So automatically you realize if a husband's permission is what's required to get contraception, then even the control over contraception for women is largely out of their hands. I don't know if it means that women can't buy condoms at the store. Uh, you know, we, we don't know kind of all the intricacies of how women can get their hands on birth control. Uh, definitely, it seems like you need to be a married person with a husband to, to get the pill. So when Janine goes into this 
you think it's an abortion clinic, you know, she's, she's very sure in what she wants. She wants to get an abortion. And, you know, this young woman is kind of grilling her, just saying, you know, are you sure you sure you don't want this baby? And she goes, yeah, the condom fell off, you know, and it's just like, okay, if that was the only, you know, she didn't even have control over that really. So um, it, it becomes clear to her, like she hasn't talked to a doctor yet. She's like, what is this place? What's going on here? And basically we learn later, this is a pregnancy crisis center where, you know, thanks to search engine marketing and our, our optimization and, and Google, if you, put, if you put, you know, abortion clinic into the machine and search it, it's going to come back with one of these clinics. So it's automatically trying to spew you to a place that's going to talk you out of getting an abortion uh, versus going to a place to have a real conversation about someone with the options you have. And, um, you know, this woman says something to Janine, like, you would be a great mother, you would be this, you would be that. And, uh, you know, you're underestimating yourself. And Janine's just kind of looking at her. And at this point, we don't realize that she has already given birth to Caleb. And he looks to be about two or three years old, maybe, maybe three, three, between three and four. Because we see that when she goes home. So clearly, we understand now, she is already a mother. She is already doing what she can for this child. We do know there's no boyfriend, father figure in the picture for him. She knows what to anticipate. She is 100% sure that this is what she wants. She takes the pamphlet, she goes home. We see her singing to her son, um, the Every Little Thing is Gonna Be All Right song, which we've heard her sing before. Uh, I think she sang that to Charlotte, AKA Angela, baby Angela, when she nursed her for the first time. And, you know, then she's at a real clinic. And, you know, she, oh, I also have to say that the woman from the crisis center told her this complete horror story about, you know, the bad things abortion can do to you if a piece of the child is left behind. And I mean, this is, you know, we've all heard this. This is right wing Christian anti, you know, anti-abortion propaganda, um, right? They call it pro-life. It is not pro-life. <laughs> There's no way that being anti-abortion is actually pro-life for, for more reasons than just terminating a pregnancy. Uh, that's my political view. As I said earlier, I was raised Catholic. I believed up until the time I was probably two or three months into my first year of college that abortion was wrong. And you know, killing babies was wrong until I realized more about women and being an adult and was in a class and talking, you know, we were having a big discussion. I went to a women's college and it made me realize, listen, abortion doesn't have to ever be my personal choice if I'm in this situation, but I have no rhyme or reason or, you know, no right to tell another woman what she can or cannot do with her body and her pregnancy. And that was the moment I became what we then called pro-choice, but I'm pro-abortion rights. So I'll just get that out there. But, you know, I wasn't always, I didn't always think that way. Um, so I, I understand 
why pro-lifers are pro-life, but I don't think they understand how unwanted children impact life and what the quality of life might be for those unwanted children. It's a big cycle, right? There are even some, there's even, God, there was a great NPR show about this a couple of years ago about kind of an underground railroad in the Catholic church that basically helped women get abortions. And I'm not talking in the sixties, I'm talking now, you know, <laughs> um, in the eighties because they don't believe that life is just about a fetus. That's, that's not just about the life. Life is, is bigger. I mean, we've got such poverty problems and, drug problems and everything else in this country. There's, you know, pro-life is a outdated term that, you know, if you're gonna use it, you need to use it correctly. I mean, anyone who's pro-death penalties clearly cannot be also pro-life. Sorry, but that's the truth. Anyway, um, I digress a little, but um, it's all interrelated, intermingled. So Janine finally gets to a clinic, a real clinic and is, you know, talks to this doctor and the doctor's cool. And she goes now legally, you know, I'm supposed to tell you side effects of getting an abortion might include, you know, depression, infertility. There was one other one. And she goes, but not legally. I can tell you that's all kind of bullshit. And she opens a cupboard and takes out like a box of pills and says, take one now before you leave, take four I don't know, tomorrow morning, later in the day, this is what's going to happen. So it's almost like not even an abortion as we've, you know, technically heard about with them sucking the baby out and, you know, wire hangers back in the sixties when uh, abortion was criminalized, which plenty of politicians and people really want to criminalize it again. Um, they are stupid to think that this will actually end abortions from happening. It actually is a women's health issue because they will end safe abortions from happening. But she gives her a box of pills. So it's like a, you know, like a morning after pill on crack, you know, which is something else we did not have when I was growing up. Um, I think, <laughs> I think the morning after pill would have changed the lives of many people I know that ended up getting pregnant uh, unexpectedly. Um, you know, due to, due to birth control error, like Janine experienced. Um, so Janine's like, that's it. That's all I have to do. And she's like, yeah, you already did the hard part by coming in here and making the decision. This is, you know, this is just the medicine that will, you know, lead you to miscarry and terminate the pregnancy. And if you're still having some problems in a few days, you know, call me and come in and we'll get it sorted out. So very easy. I, I, um, I personally don't know if, if we have an option like that today, something like a, a really intense morning after pill uh, package. I want to say they might actually have something like this in the UK. I want to say I have heard about this, but it was the first time I'd kind of seen it represented as an option in, I don't know what you'd call it, pop culture, but um, interesting, very interesting. So this is where we learn Janine knows who she is, knows what she wants, and that she can make hard choices. She can make difficult decisions on her own 
without anyone else really telling her what to do. And that she's not as easily swayed. You know, we see her in her most vulnerable position this whole time in Gilead. You know, when we see her come in, she's all, you know, she basically tells Aunt Lydia to fuck off the first time she sees her, which leads to her getting her eye taken out. And that really, I think it did put her in her place. It was, you know, it's torture. But I think, you know, perhaps maybe now Janine is finding somewhat of her old self, even though she's, she seems a little resistant as for at first, Um, you know, they, she and June are continuing on this train and then you hear gunfire and people falling off of the vehicle and it comes to a stop at the vehicle, the train. And, um, June's like, this is it. If they're shooting at this train, these are the people we want to be with, uh, which has got to be something crazy to think when you're in a desperate situation like this. So, so June manages, and I was wondering this in the beginning, I'm like, how the fuck are they going to get out of this milk canister? But June gives, I mean, uh, June gives June a boost. June has amazing upper body strength to get herself out of that thing. And then, you know, she sees people and this woman's like, oh my God. She, and she's like, can you help us? She's like, us? <laughs> she pulls Janine out of there. Again, amazing upper body strength. Um, you know, Janine had to have had a stool down there to really make that happen. It's just, uh, you know, they're there and Janine's like, hi. <laughs> in her very, uh, in her very, you know, Janine way. So, they get out and someone's like, wait, you have owners, right? Are they looking for you? And again, it's just like your head explodes a little bit because we're seeing the two worlds collide at this point. We are seeing Gilead that was once America, people that have been in prison there and have escaped. And we're seeing what's left of America in Chicago, which we know Chicago is kind of a last bastion for the United States. We've heard things about the Republic of Texas from Alma a couple episodes earlier. And just the fact that it is viewed by Americans that elsewhere in this country that we all knew as the United States, there are people who are owned. Um, And, you know, I don't know. It's very interesting. It's, and I think it's the first time these Americans are seeing former fellow Americans who have been trapped in Gilead and they've heard about it, but they've never seen it. You know, they say, Oh my God, you know, sex slaves, we heard they kept you in chains. And June's like, Oh, not exactly. But, um, you know, June, says, please, we will do anything. We will help. We're useful. You know, we'll do anything. Please help us. She's like, please help us. So they take them. They're going through the streets of Chicago. It just looked, everything's shot up, boarded up. You see people kind of straggling about. It's very much looks like a ghost town. And they get up to this man, Stephen's office, I guess you'd say. They're in this brick building. It looks kind of warehousey, but, you know, old warehousey considering it's, it's brick. Um, and, you know, he's, he's saying, well, 
okay, yeah, you guys, you guys can stay, but you know, we'll get you clothes, we'll get you some food. You know, June's really like, you have to help us. And I kind of think she handled this in not the right way. She seemed, she seemed to feel very entitled to their help, which I get, you know, you would hope that if you're basically a refugee coming to America and you were a former fellow American, people would be much more willing to help you and, and much more kind about it. But even this guy, Stephen says, Stephen says, yeah, welcome to the United States. It's a, it's a shit show. You know, it's a fucking disaster, which leads you to believe they've had their own struggles, albeit it hasn't been sex slavery or has it because, you know, June really barters for them to get food and clothes and they can help and be useful. And he goes, okay, but one of you's got to stay. Ooh, and this is where I really had a problem with this episode. Um, so a man who recognizes two women as having been sex slaves says, you said you could be useful this is what you've got. So as a woman, an American man, still American, quotation marks, is saying, your value is what you can give me sexually. And I was just like, oh God, this is, this is the problem. So much for America, even in America, women are, you know, women's use is somehow equated back to uh, what they could give a man sexually. And I just, ugh, you know, and they go through this thing. He's, he's like, well, I'm not going to force you, but if you want to stay, you're going to blow me basically, you know? Um, and, you know, it just kind of also made me realize how much we've heard blowjobs making, uh, having a role in, in Gilead. I think, <laughs> you know, Janine, Janine, when she got you know reassigned after the colony, said something to the effect of, "Oh, and it's just the ceremony, no blowjobs." I'm like, "Oh God, <laughs> okay." And June also, when she enters Commander Lawrence's house and she convinces Lawrence to let this Martha stay, that they're actually trying to get out, trying to get out to go to Chicago because she's a bomb builder, and she comes back him and. And Beth's like, what'd you do? She goes, I convinced him. Beth's like, that must have been some blowjob. June retorts, Red Center special. So, um, I mean, and blowjobs in general, you know, everyone has their preferences. But anytime I just hear conversation about blowjobs, I think about one of the real former Real Housewives of New York, Karen Radzewill. I'm probably not saying her name right. Um, but she once said, they don't call it a job because it's easy, which just made me crack up. And I always think of that. And, um, and also in just line of Real Housewives and, and what I'm watching, I watch New Jersey as well. Yes, I, I do watch trash TV in addition, to, uh, in addition to The Handmaid's Tale. But there's this one woman on the New Jersey show, Jackie, who infamously will not give her husband a blowjob. Like it's a thing on the show. And she's just like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then it kind of came out and they give her a hard time for it all the time, but it kind of came out and it's, it's unclear the new, the, to all the nuances around it. But a couple episodes, 
she said, oh yeah, all like the nice, you know, boys you think you're going out, my mom thought I was going out with in high school, like all they wanted were blowjobs in the car. And, and I, and that's why she's so turned off to blowjobs. So it was very unclear. Did someone force, someone force her to, to give him one? And anyway, that, that gets into another line of abuse in our common culture, like women being forced to do sexual acts that they're not entirely comfortable with, which is what we're seeing here even after they known their mothers, sisters, potentially daughters could have been sold into sexual slavery or slavery in general, they're still okay with asking a woman to blow them in exchange for food, shelter, safety, which, ugh, you know, and he says to her as she's unbuckling his pants, I guess you're used to this. And I'm just like, and June can't do it. And I can't blame her. Like, I mean, also just what's the showering situation like in that place? Ugh. You know, I mean, sorry to just like take it to like a realistic level, but it's just, no one wants to blow someone they just met. I mean, I think the guy's good looking, but it doesn't mean I'd give him a BJ. Come on. Um, it's just um, these poor women are just in the same situation where they are going to have to use sex as a way to survive. Um, and maybe that's what we've kind of been forced to do since the dawn of time, I don't know. But um, this part of the episode really kind of pissed me off. Um, however, um, June, June is saying no and she turns around and says, this isn't Mayday, is it? And he's like, what's Mayday? Which is another just kind of blow, no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry, no pun intended, but it's a huge disappointment because you, I think June automatically thought anyone who is in Chicago has got to be part of the Mayday operation. Maybe that's only the term they use in Gilead, but he didn't really seem to know anything about it, which hopefully means there are other groups and organizations in Chicago that, that are Mayday. You know, I would, it'd be kind of fun to to see that Martha, the woman who was the Martha that was going there to build the bombs for them again. Um, hopefully next week's episode is titled Chicago. So I imagine we're gonna get deeper into this last bastion that has been resisting Gilead all this time. And so maybe, maybe we'll find out more. I really hope we do. But at the end of the day, we see June changing into clothes she she'd gone down to janine and just said we can't stay here you know this we, we just can't stay here and janine's like hey get some get some clothes at least they have a ton of them and you see janine look back up over her shoulder at the office where stephen is and we see june changing and i mean you know it's it's you know she just feels super defeated she's been the caretaker this whole time. She, she, you know, she said earlier that she wished she'd left Janine behind, but she wanted to take, take the bullet, you know, for Janine. She didn't want Janine to have to, you know, Janine's been abused so much. I think she's, she is very protective of her and didn't want her to have to submit herself to that. But Janine makes a choice. She, she you know, we know she's not fond of blowjobs. We've heard her say it, but she goes up there. She does what she feels she has to do for them to stay. I guess, you know, in the 10 minutes June was up in that office, 
Janine is realizing, okay, in spite of my hesitancy to come with these people I thought were mean at first, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. There's a lot of clothes. There are other people here. You know, we're, we're, we're inside. And it's, you know, she's decided that a blowjob is, is worth sticking it out to see what happens. And so she does it. And, you know, she comes back down, gives June a piece of bread and just says, hey, you know, it wasn't that bad. You thought my iPads was cool, which, you know, it breaks your heart to think Janine had to do that. But in the same way, in some weird, messed up way, it gave her some sense of power and agency. And like, I did something June couldn't do, you know, regardless of the fact that it was giving this guy a BJ, but I did something June couldn't do to help us you know, to help us survive, which, um, yeah, it was, it was, that was a little, that was a little rough. I mean, this wasn't as bad as, well, bad in a different way. This wasn't anything compared to the last episode, but this whole thing, once they get to Chicago really bothered me because it just kind of made me think, We've heard, we hear stories about how war changes men into different people and they expect different things, but you, and clearly it's, it's changed what's left of the United States, which gives you also a huge question mark. What's, if, if they're ever able to take down Gilead, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for the United States after this? Which, you know, um, I don't know. And what does it mean for women? I just, I still think that June really handled that issue up in the office with him initially just wrong. Like, I think she should have been like, we were responsible for getting 80 kids on a flight, 86 kids on a flight out of, out of Gilead to Canada. You know, we took out six commanders and hospitalized another nine that were set to come here to fight you. I think she, she could have, I mean, Maybe she's trying to, sh maybe she's trying to keep that secret right now because she's uh, there. She doesn't want them to be afraid people are going to come looking for them. But at the same time, you're a badass and you're not telling him about any of the badass stuff you've done. Like she, she didn't even represent her value and the value she could bring and the things that she's done to get there. And you know, maybe that's something else. Maybe in some ways, I think there are a lot of women in society that still really undervalue themselves and what they are capable of doing and they underestimate themselves um, too. And I don't know, it's just, uh, this I think got into really kind of very feminist commentary area and, um, there's so much that can be equated back to just even society today with, with a few little instances. Um, so that's kind of that. I would say, you know, I realized I haven't done Sister Resistor of the Week recently, um, this season, but I'd have to say this week, it's, it's both Janine and Rita in their own very different ways. And also, you know, just some things in the news that I think have been interesting this past week to, to listen to are, um, I don't know if you heard, I listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, every day, um, well, five days a week. And 
one of the podcasts <clears throat> earlier this week was about how our birth rate is falling in the United States um, due to some of the census information, but it turns out we're not alone in the world. It's, it's, it's falling all over the world and it's not due to infertility. It's, it's more due to personal choice of women, which, you know, gets us back to the, the, the fact that, you know, women want to have more, you know, control over their bodies and, and when and if they have children. And I think they also said teen pregnancies way down. Um, a lot of this younger generation is just kind of not having sex is what it sounds like. And that's not the first time I've heard it. It's, it's you know, I've heard that they, they're kind of just more asexual, not, not as interested in, in, in having sex as, you know, maybe we were if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, I don't know, and maybe even the, the aughts, uh, early aughts, but um, just kind of interesting that, you know, more women are making the choice to either really delay uh, having children, not having them at all, or having much fewer than we likely would have had in the past. Um, always just kind of has Gilead at the back of my mind since um, population was a problem primarily due to infertility, but it's, it's still a question to ask. And um, gosh, there was something else in the news too I was gonna bring up. And I can't recall what it was, but... Um, but yeah, I did, I did think that population story was pretty interesting, pretty interesting. So anyway, well, thank you for joining me this week. Um, it was a little lonely not having someone to podcast with, but I think there's still really a lot to think about uh, with this episode. So if you have any feedback or any parts of this episode milk that I did not cover that you'd like me to touch on, um, I, I would be happy to do just kind of a little feedback follow-up pod about that. Um, if people have thoughts, you can send that to me at resistinggilead at gmail.com if you've got anything, any thoughts to share about this. In the meantime, don't let the bastards grind you down and have a great week. Mm -hmm.